0: everyone knows the struggles with patio umbrellas but this particular one just will will not stay up um sorry to make that generalized assumption but i hate patio umbrellas um Look, so uh,
1: for so everybody you get a little peek behind the curtain we usually pick what our cold open is going to be after we've got the edit episode the episode edited together that's it y'all just heard the cold open now you'll already know what it was because you'll have heard it everybody, welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about
0: theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Yes, thank you all for tuning back in. We're excited to get to talk about some more plays with all of you out there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. More recent plays, too, which is nice. <laughs> right, right, right. We, we uh, As many of you know, we've been on a, on a kick of our themed month doing all these old, old plays, some of the oldest plays in existence. And last week and this week, we've gotten to have conversations where the plays are fresh, they're new in some fashion, at least newer than, like, hundreds, thousands of years ago. <laughs> and the playwrights in both last week and this week's cases are still alive. It is a wild, true. cool phenomenon. <laughs>
0: Yeah, definitely. And we are kind of uh, casting our gaze over the next two weeks as we do these plays. Uh, this week, we are talking about Detroit by Lisa Moore, And then, Jacob, you're talking next week without without me next week about a play.
1: That's right, yes. I got to have an awesome conversation with Kay Edmonds. She's a theater artist who is uh, in Michigan, and she directed Detroit 67. And we were able to talk about that play from her perspective as an artist, as a director, as a mission. Mich- Michigan native. It was uh, an awesome conversation, and it's the second in this kind of pair of episodes about just basically plays with Detroit in the name is this right. pair of episodes.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> it works out. It works out. We're, we're finding synthesis somewhere. but Yeah, yeah have, but, no, of course. Both of these plays take
1: place in Detroit, although this play, I think we'll probably talk about that, doesn't necessarily have to take place in Detroit. That's kind of an interesting thing. I'm sure that we will get there one of the days. But, yes, please tune in next week for our special guest episode. It's a great privilege to get to do that every season, Talk to someone from a totally different area of theater. In this case, professional practicing theater artist who doesn't live near me at all. She actually lives much closer to you than me, Jackson.
0: It's true. Yeah, very, pretty, yeah, relatively closer to me. Yeah, I'm excited to get to hear the uh, the conversation next week. So tune into that and stay tuned today as we are about to jump into the play. However, however, before we do, I do want to take just a second and say thank you to all of our patrons over at Patreon.com/slash/NoScriptPodcast. Thank you all for being a part of the no script community and and helping the show continue to happen. Uh, we love getting to do this show. We love getting to have these conversations with all of you all out there. We love getting to have theme months and guest episodes on the podcast. And if you're looking for a way to help out the show, to be a part of being sure that, that the show can continue to have these conversations, patreon.com slash no script podcast is a great way to do it. it we, we have uh, patron levels for as low as $1 over there. A bunch of different patrons level. You get access to patron only posts and all sorts of fun things over there. So if you're looking to help out the show, head over to patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. Thank you to all of our patrons. We will see you over there. And now, back to the script. Back to the script.
1: All right, Lisa DeAmour, she is a new playwright to the podcast. She is really a brilliant playwright who's had this interdisciplinary career. Everywhere that you look to where she would describe herself in terms of having written a bio, she describes herself as a playwright and is- interdisciplinary artist. And in, in that phrase, she is somewhat referring to, I would imagine, this kind of experimental performance duo that she is part of, Pearled Amore. That grew this pair, won an Obie Award in 2003 for their show Nita and Zita, but they do all kinds of interesting things. There was an art, performance art installation uh, about the forests where they built and installed and then de-installed like a, uh, a synthetic, a mock forest in this theater space. They do these intimate theater spaces and businesses, all kinds of really interesting interdisciplinary kinds of things as well as she is just a brilliant playwright she got her mfa in playwriting from texas at austin obviously that is a huge big playwriting program and she has taught in graduate and undergraduate playwriting programs across the country some of the really notable programs she has taught in she ran the brown program for a while and then came back as a guest lecturer she's been a guest professor at places like the university of iowa which is a really big program and back at her alma mater at the university of texas being the caliber of playwright that she is, her plays are really produced everywhere. Off-Broadway and, and all kinds of places like the Manhattan Theater Club, Steppenwolf, Playwrights Horizon, the Wilma Theater, Boy Mammoth Theater, Guthrie. Those are all major names in the world of theater across America, and she has had productions in them. She is the recipient of the 2008 Alpert Award for the Arts in Theater, 2011 Steinberg Playwright Award, and the 2013 Doris Duke Performing Artist. Award. She is an alumni of New Dramatists and many times over nominated for Drama Desk and Obie Awards and things like that. This specific play, Detroit, was a finalist for the 2011 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. It was a nominee for the Obie Award in 2013 for the Best New American Play, and I think it actually won that award. My note is not as clear as it should have been, but I believe it actually won the 2013 Obie Award. It premiered in 2010, in 2010, at Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago, with just a crazy cast. Uh, I mean, Ian Barford and Laurie Metcalf headlined the cast. Those are incredible actors. Kevin Anderson, Kate Arrington, and Robert Brewer, who, if you don't know Robert Brewer off the top of your head, has had a lovely little television and film career. If you saw the 96 Crucible, like the famous Crucible film, he was Judge Hawthorne in that film, as obviously he's a much younger man. And then it went on to uh, play off Broadway at Playwrights Horizon Theater in 2012. And David Schwimmer and Amy Ryan headlined that cast. So I'm sure that that was an incredible performance as well. It's had quite a life across America after that being the caliber of play that it is. So there's a decent chance that, uh, you know, there may have been in the past five, six years of production in a regional house near you. You may even look around. Maybe there will be one. Um, it's still doing the round in that circuit. So great play. Detroit by Lisa Damore passing off to Jackson for the synopsis.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna try to synopsis synopsize this play just a little bit. Um, uh, this play is about neighbors, so we have two sets of neighbors in Ben and Mary, and then Kenny and Sharon. And Kenny and Sharon have just moved into the house next door to Ben and Mary. So the first scene of the play is they're inviting them over for you know backyard barbecue, um, and 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 they get to know each other a little bit. We get to hear a little bit more about their story early on in that first scene. We discover that uh, Kenny and Sharon are are kind of Renting this house from Kenny's uncle, um, and uh, they're relatively new to the area after having just come out of a recovery center for something. We're not exactly sure. Eventually, we 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 learn that they have. Uh, uh, it's not it's not an alcoholics uh, addiction, but a, a, a yeah. There's in a kind of the dark addiction.
1: humor of the play. I think that Kenny says something like. Sharon's real problem is mainlining heroin so I think she's right, right. got a pretty serious addiction which does come up several times in the play.
0: Yeah, yeah, but they're they're kind of in a recovery stage having just come out come coming out of rehab and kind of getting their life back together. So uh this the, the couple begins to interact and and uh, th- this this uh first uh, barbecue over, it gets pretty deep pretty quick. Uh, Sharon starts to cry at one point, and they they have pretty deep conversation about each other's lives. So much so that Mary grows to trust Sharon quite quite a bit. The next scene, Mary uh, goes over to their uh, to their house in the middle of the night, kind of stumbles her way over, pretty clearly drunk. Um, and kind of confides in Sharon as to some of her experience of Ben at their house. Now, there's a lot of things happening behind the doors at their house. Ben has recently lost his job. He was a banker. Um, He's trying to set up a website to be a financial consultant. He's currently unemployed, getting a a, a pension from the bank, but trying to build up this company as a consultant, a financial consultant for people. Um, Mary confesses a lot of her frustration in that in a a somewhat of a drunken time raid um that, that sharon <laughs> <laughs> that that sharon holds as best she can she uh asks her if she can get some help and 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 uh, eventually ben comes over and and brings her back home um more things happen. More of these sorts of backyard things happen. There's a lot of different conversation. Kenny goes to Ben for some financial advice because he's trying to start up his own company again. Eventually, Kenny and Sharon have Ben and Mary over to their place, and a couple other odd things start to happen in there. We start to uh, Mary snoops around their house quite a bit um, and discovers that they have no furniture. There's there's not a, a lot of anything in there. Um, there's there's uh, <laughs> there's there there's a point where the porch is Play a pretty pivotal role. Kenny is building a porch that they're sitting on, and it's in such bad shape that Ben falls through it and and scrapes his knee up pretty bad. And they have no towels to give him to kind of staunch the blood that's bleeding. So you 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 get the sense that they're they're pretty transient, pretty poor, trying to start over from from nothing. Mary and Sharon's friendship continues to grow and they, they have begin to have this shared dream of going out camping together, going back to the wilderness, just just those two women to get get away, be a part of nature, and 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 they 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 actualize that. They manage to go on a trip, um or leave, start start on a trip. <laughs> um the uh the the guys are left behind, and and this is the stage of the play that things start to go a little a little bit sideways. We start to hear um, Sharon confessing that she's had a bit of a relapse. Um, we see Ben drinking, uh, or I'm sorry, Kenny drinking with Ben on the porch, and you start to get the sense that perhaps uh, rehab is is fading into the distance a little bit for these folks, and they're starting to to crack a little bit and fall off the wagon. Sharon confesses to having fallen off the wagon. Um, so the guys are, are, are drinking on the, on the front porch and the women come back after having, uh, uh, not quite gotten to the camping point, gotten lost, car trouble, they hike back. Um, and instead of, uh, what the guys were planning to do, which was going to be a night on the town and what the girls were planning to do, which was going to be a camping trip, they end up in this kind of like, uh, fairly drunken fire party like, in their backyard it's like Bachian. i mean it's yeah, like yeah i was going to say like drunk, a McConnell. sexual
1: carnal there's yeah. fire and there's uh, dirty dancing and there's making out which is uh we don't know a ton about like the character of kenny and sharon just because of what the play is but for ben and mary it's very much out of character
0: Right. Definitely. Yeah. This is like, yeah, very odd. They're very, this whole thing, I I should have probably said at the beginning, we said it in the context a little bit. It's set in suburbia, right? So like, you know, close neighbors, suburban back and front yard. There's this other character that floats through who's this woman in a pink jogger, who's a character who like accuses uh, Kenny and Sharon of having a dog that poops on her lawn all the time. So all this sort of suburban stuff happening around them and in that setting is this like this drunken fire party, which culminates in a a lot of things. A lot of things come out. People make out who are not married, so like Ben and Sharon end up making out. Kenny dances, uh, dirty dances with just about everyone who's there. (laughs) Um, um, it just, it just really starts to amplify. Eventually, Ben confesses, uh, that, that he in fact has not been working on a website at all. In fact, he's been like kind of living Uh, like a forum double life as a British person um, over in England. Um, That's been a a theme throughout. Sharon keeps saying, it sounds like you have a British accent. You must be English in some way. Um, And uh, so he confesses to having not been working on his kind of startup project. And then Kenny... Kind of pretty much burns down their house. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, in, in this moment of kind of confessing of fire, this they talk a lot about the, the purifying nature of fire, of starting over. This is this is the moment of truth, sort of things. Kenny burns down uh, their house, and they at this point Mary and Ben begin to kind of wake up a little bit and realize what's happening. The last scene. Uh, Kenny and Sharon have left and we're introduced to a new character who is Frank. Frank turns out to be Kenny's uncle. And we find out that Kenny is in fact, not Kenny, but Roger. Um, and we begin to kind of unpack a lot of the, the lies around, around them and, and what, what Frank is now doing. He's locking up the house. He didn't in fact, give them permission to live there. They broke in Frank reflects on the neighborhood and what it used to be when he lived there decades ago. Um, and we're left with Ben and Mary kind of holding the the ashes of their house and uh, wondering how to restart in light of a, a lot of things coming to light that I have not addressed in the synopsis because we're going to get into all of these things in our conversation because so much about this play are the secrets and the lies that these characters are t- are holding in them.
1: Yeah, there there is this this sense of like authenticity as one of the currencies of the play. How do these characters negotiate and give to each other and hold on to some sort of authenticity about who they really are? And that comes through in a lot of different ways. But while we're here, let's talk about something that is a little bit synopsis-y, which is the setting for the play. You mentioned suburbia, and, and um, Lisa amor she describes that the play needs to take place in, she calls it the first ring suburb. So older homes, home primarily built in the 50s. Uh, Frank, the great-uncle character, he says that these were kind of like the model homes. They all sort of looked alike. You can imagine that in that kind of inner suburb of a, of a mid-sized American city. Now, the play is called Detroit, and so you'd say, okay, well, the is set in Detroit. But listen to this note under the heading place in the script notes. Not necessarily Detroit. However, we are in the first ring suburb outside of a midsize American city, outside of a midsize American city. So Jackson and I were kind of chattering about this as we were getting set up to record that I'm not quite sure what to make of that note because the play is called Detroit.
0: It's true. I mean, clearly Detroit was in in the, in the mind of the, the, the playwright as she wrote it. Um, Uh, And I think and I think Detroit certainly serves some of the themes very well, the deterioration of suburban life um, and of the the uh, the economy that was around Motortown, right around the huge boom of Detroit and then the subsequent kind of vacuum. That happened uh, is is an amplified version of what this play is talking about. With that said, I think a lot of cities that kind of came uh, into their their full actuality in the industrial age and then tried the suburban experiment are experiencing a similar deterioration as Detroit, and so the universalizing of it is is appropriate. There's a great quote at the start of my that's kind of uh, before the play, but a quote that's included in the play in the in the play pages is: "Plywood has a lifespan." of 40 years over time the glue that holds plywood together dries up then walls buckle split and peel panels pop loose rooms doors and windows morph into trick-or-treat versions of themselves
1: yeah that first of all that is an excellent quote outside anything it's descriptive and beautiful but in the context of this play these sort of lives that have become that kind of trick-or-treat version of lives is is a huge kind of metaphor for what goes on in the script. There are other things in those script notes that kind of move alongside that note about it being not necessarily Detroit but the play is called Detroit. she goes on to say that the play could be set in is written for the front yard and backyard of these two houses but if you needed to you could just do it in the backyards and she provides some script notes that would uh suggest what changes need to be made if you're going to do that so there's that kind of what is your production going to do with that and then there's a note about the casting which is that she when she originally wrote the Play. She wrote it for everybody to be in their mid-30s except for the great-uncle Frank, um, but that as she's kind of watched the play develop, it really could be that Ben and Mary are older and Kenny and Sharon are younger. It doesn't even necessarily need to be that Kenny and Sharon are close to the same age. She says that, I just ask that directors consider how the age of the characters reverberates through the whole script. The focus of the story can shift quite a bit depending on how old they are. So she gives right away at the beginning, it seems to me, a fair bit of latitude for production companies to decide what this play looks like and where this play happens and who this play happens to.
0: Yeah, definitely. And that, that continues throughout the play in the stage directions. Many stage directions offer a a given action for the character but then ask really good questions as well, like uh, per- perhaps they do X or perhaps they do Y, and it's in the stage direction. So I think there is this mood of this is your play, figure out how to make it work wh- while still honoring the overall arc that the, that the play is trying to talk about.
1: Yeah, and that we—I mean—we talk about scripts. We often talk about you know there are sometimes where it feels like a playwright is overbearing. Sometimes where a playwright maybe doesn't quite provide quite enough for you to really grasp what they are trying to get out of it. In this case, it, there's a kind of a nice balance of how are you going to be creative with what, who, where, while still living in the world that Lisa De More creates for what is happening to the character in terms of this, this wild encounter between neighbors.
0: Yeah, 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 and and I think the the characters she's written leave the door wide open for that. Um, there there is perhaps a necessity to have Ben and Mary be a little bit older because Ben is kind of uh, at the tail end of a job that he has had for some time. That is enough to kind of send him into a bit of a crisis moment when he loses it. But uh, Kenny and Sharon are pretty movable uh, in terms of age. Um, though though uh, of of the two, it's if you were going to have one be the older couple, it's probably Ben and Mary.
1: Right, yeah, and and I, I do, I, I like the way she put that note that the focus of the play can shift based on how you imagine the ages of these couples. because that, I mean, that just rings true in my reading of the play and in my feeling about the characters. If Kenny and Sharon are a younger couple and Ben and Mary are an older couple, there, there is a slightly different story being told than if all of these characters are the same age and Ben and Mary are just simply in a much different place than Kenny and Sharon, partially due to um life choices and partially due to life privileges of their upbringings one of the things that i loved about this script and th- honestly so far in the conversation this has mostly been about stuff you wouldn't see on stage just right, because right. they're in the notes yeah. but it, they're so interesting what i i love and i actually thinking about as a you know kind of a casual playwright myself i may start doing something like this she includes in the character notes information that is really just for the actor. I mean, I don't, yeah. it's not, it doesn't come up in the script anywhere. Let me give you just a sense of some of the notes that don't really come up in the text of the play at all, but stuff she tells you about the characters. For men raised in the United States, that does come up, uh, but somewhere inland, Kansas City, maybe Denver. Uh, And then she talks about his job, which we do learn about. Mary, raised in the United States, Kansas City, maybe Denver. She talks about how they met, which comes up a little bit, but not so much. Kenny, raised in several cities in California until he was 12 or 13. Parents split up, and he moved to Omaha with his mom. That doesn't come up at all, really. Uh, Sharon, raised in Tucson until she was nine. Then she and her mother moved to Columbus, Ohio for two years, and then to Indianapolis, where she went to high school. In junior year, her mother moved to Arizona with her boyfriend. Sharon lived with her best friend to finish high school, goes on to describe her job. So there's this information about kind of where these characters come from and then like kenny's i said it doesn't come up but it does frank brings up a little bit about his background but it doesn't come up in a way that affects the plot really at all this is just this is just the spices of life that tell you about who these people are and how they've come to be here
0: Right, valuable subtext for the actor because because but but ultimately not it acted out in the play necessarily though though that subtext does inform things like I think Sharon and Mary's connection like I said, that that's the one that you that you I think you see um, the most the most need for them to be at least close ish in age not like multiple decades apart because you have these two going through this, a similar moment of fear around financial stability and around kind of trappedness in life that, that does need to have a little bit of resonance that has to have those moments of connections where Sharon saying, I'm still eating ramen at this age for many meals out of the night means something in connection to their struggle around stability, around connection to their world and their kind of longevity and ability to, to handle this Uh, precariousness in that season of life.
1: Well, yeah, the kinship that the two pairs of neighbors find, even amidst their Pretty strikingly different situations is kind of one of the defining features of the play. You describe this connection between Sharon and Mary in terms of stability, financial security, feeling stuck. And you have Sharon, like you said, say the thing about still eating ramen in her th- mid-30s and, and that the kind of... Outlook that provides her on what the next step might be what the path forward might be and Mary is similarly reflecting on a path forward a next step of feeling stuck but for her it's about like buying budget furniture in right. whatever age that you decide to cast that couple. So that's a pretty wide gap to be in, right? Sharon, <laughs> on the one hand, upset about still eating ramen in her 30s for most meals. I mean, people like ramen, I understand. And this was play was written 11 years ago before the <laughs> rise of popular, you know, white American right. culture ramen. <laughs> we're, we're talking about the brick
0: brick ramen with yeah, the dust. Yeah, <laughs> right. So,
1: but she eats that a lot, right, for dinner because it's cheap. And she's, uh, you know, concerned about that. But Mary is concerned about, like, the fact that they're still buying budget furniture, right? So that's, a that's a pretty wide gap and yet there is a kinship almost there's almost a kinship just in struggle not so much in what the struggle is
0: and the desire to throw off of that struggle, to, to start something afresh or a new, get back to a basics sort of mentality. Um, and I think we see that in both of them. It's Mary who first pitches this, this idea of retreating to the forest or to camping or something like that. But it's also Sharon who brings up this kind of archaic idea of neighbors, Right and returning to this connection, this this uh, a- ability to to exist in community with people, so they're both kind of hearkening back to these these ideals that they would that that it makes sense that they find a lot of resonance in each other around.
1: Yeah, that that is one of the more uh, maybe understated is too strongly stated <laughs> for whatever that little phrase means, but look, let's say understated kind of. Um, It's not quite a theme, but like a, a, a mood, a reflection throughout the play is this looking back. Obviously, Mary has this desire to be like... She, she calls it camping, but she's really referring to quite, very rustic camping, almost like living, living yeah. in a tent, fishing and hunting your own food, cooking it over your own fire, not really owning anything, being transient and living in the forest, this kind of harken back to an ancient way of living. Sharon is reflecting on like an, a more... Um, a more attitude of community togetherness than exists in, in modern neighborhoods, I guess is the is what Lisa Delmore is saying. And then, of course, the, the play's final scene, Frank, goes on for quite some time in a really detailed visual description of what life was like in the 50s when these homes, these model homes, were all put up and what these neighborhoods were like. So it, there is this current in the play of whatever is going on in our world now, there is a looking back at something that the characters feel like may be better.
0: And you get to see them play out those two hopes in the play to various avail, or at least try to. Um, you You see Sharon invite them over to her place uh, and try to host them with what little she has <laughs> slash what little she's stealing from <laughs> Kenny's uncle. <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> but still, um, she tries to you know she like brings out food on on trays to try to entertain and tries to frame it in a way that she knows is the right way, even though it's like a rusty cookie tin and cheese whiz. Um, and 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 you you get to see her try that vision. You get to see Mary try the vision of living out in camping and sadly they don't actually get to the camping but they 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 see some of the struggles with that some of the ways that maybe this is an idealized version that they that they can't quite get to um so, so yeah you get to see these these uh nostalgic ideals played out and and negotiated with which kind of leads into that outburst at the end that the that, that that didn't work so let's just party and and feel um all the things that that we wish we could have enacted
1: yeah, I love that you bring up the 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 moments where Sharon and Kenny try to host their own version of the outdoor garden party thing because the these backyard meal encounters really are the structural columns that hold up the play. They're the legs of the stool and they they kind of everything else circles around what goes on in those. And so when eventually it's the I think the third grill party that is had in the play uh, is the one in Sharon and Kenny's backyard. They are mirroring the experience that they're trying to create, not just on stereotypes and what they imagine it should be like, but more specifically than that, on the backyard grill parties that Ben and Mary have thrown for them, to the point of in what I think is one of the more uh, uh, subtle, funny lines of the play, when Kenny is finally going to grill for them himself he says, "All right," and he claps, because that's what Ben did let's get these puppies on the grill which is exactly the phrasing that Ben has used twice in the two grilling parties that they have thrown for Sharon and Kenny, the previous two that are in the And then, of course, the final one is the big drunken Bachian grill party that they all have that, where everything lights on fire. So <laughs> right. I, I, the, the mirroring that Lisa Amor does is a beautifully done technique. I mean, it is really masterfully crafted and it works well for the characters. And there's so much to mirror, right? Like what are some of the other things that that Sharon Kenny grill party mirrors from the earlier Ben and Mary ones?
0: Right. Well, the the big structural one that isn't as much based in like a character trying to emulate, but but in fact the play showing that we're we're mirroring these two experiences and kind of comparing and contrasting is the injuries that happen at both of yes. the at both places. Um there's there's a pretty notable injury in the first barbecue where Kenny stands up, there's uh, some Bar- business with
1: barbecue. That I, I've, I keep <laughs> saying grill party and right, I knew right. that there was a word I should be saying
0: instead. Bar <laughs> Barbecue. We yes. found it. We got there. <laughs> Grill party. <Oof. laughs> at, at that first one, there's this patio umbrella that is, you know, everyone knows the struggles with patio umbrellas. But this particular one just will, will not stay up. Um, sorry to make that generalized assumption, but I hate patio umbrellas. Um <laughs> so
1: uh, for everybody you get a little peek behind the curtain we usually pick what our cold open is going to be after we've got the edit episode the episode edited together that's it y'all just heard the cold (laughs) open now you'll already know what it was because you'll have heard it but what you're witnessing now is us landing on what the cold open is going to be Jackson's diatribe against
0: patio umbrellas (laughs) they're the worst and this one is particularly bad in that he can't like it seems like it stays up Ben like gets it to stay up and then it crashes down on Kenny's head hard enough to cause like a cut on his head and they have to like stop the bleeding this whole thing happens he and ins- they try to take him to the hospital he insists that that he not go to the hospital um, and they continue on with that with that barbecue. This is mirrored later on in, in the one at Kenny and Sharon's house. Um, however, it's to do with the porch. Kenny is building this porch that is barely done. He's tried to delay the hosting of them uh, over to there till he finishes it, and he and he, that doesn't work. So so uh, uh, Ben at one point tries to go into the house to help um, with with something, and he crashes through the the boards of the porch and scrapes up his leg really bad and then there's ensuing uh trying to staunch the bleeding and the kind of uh removal uh, in in a in an odd way like there there's also the removal of inhibitions happening with alcohol that is going around at that party but violence slash pain not necessarily violence pain also removes some of the inhibitions of these characters in both of the scenes
1: Yeah, and and then there's lots of little things, right? Like the play opens with the barbecue in Ben (laughs) and Mary's backyard, and Mary is telling about a dream that she has had. And then when we, uh, not the next barbecue, the next barbecue is also in Ben and Mary's house, but the one that we're mirroring that happens in Kenny and Sharon's backyard opens with Sharon describing a dream that she had, right? So just little structural moments that the playwright builds in there. And then there's the larger ones that are about the play like the injury and then like In the first barbecue in Ben and Mary's house, there's some reflections on the joy, the wonderment of neighborhood, of neighbors, and how incredible it is, how we don't do that anymore. Then when we get to Sharon and Kenny's backyard, one of the neighbors, the famous hot pink jogging suit lady, their neighbors, comes by, and Sharon and this lady get into a screaming match with some pretty incredible foul language. So we show off the negative of neighbors, right?
0: Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You so so you get like the the kind of uh, it's not quite dystopian, but I'll I'll just st- stick with the deterioration of this myth that they're still trying to to hold up. This this myth of the togetherness, um, the myth of the back porch party and all that business continues to be uh, interrupted or 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 uh, stymied by these these things that we get to see in dyads in 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 both different settings.
1: So we've we've talked about what occupies like the first sixty or seventy percent of the play, and then there is this big Baki and drunken wildfire night, which ends with the house, the Ben and Mary's house, being burned down, and then we come to the last scene in the play, which is some some fairly major reversals. Uh, that that really change how we understand what has happened in the past whatever we spent with these characters hour and a half we the the previous scene which in my script is scene seven that's an interesting note for those of you who uh maybe you have a copy of the script or you're going to buy it jackson and i noticed that the different editions of the script that we have there's always changes between editions but one of the notable ones between the ones we have is that my script is divided into scenes with scene numbers and jackson's there are no scene breaks they seem to be the same scenes butted up against each other in the same same stage directions, but just there's no page break and then scene title, scene eight, scene seven.
0: Yeah, wh- while we're on that real quick, I want to go to where you're going for, for the end of the play, but that was just an interesting thing to notice. I think in my my version, it kind of gave me the sense that it's it's hard to throw an intermission in, into this play. And and uh, without, without scene breaks, it kind of asks, or at least makes the production team ask the question, can you make your audience just sit through this whole thing? and try to experience it in one moment without the the grace of an intermission to kind of uh, derail you from the experience.
1: And it's interesting because typically when you think of a play without scene breaks, you think of a play without full blackouts. And the blackouts that are written in my script that end every scene, then the next scene says scene eight, da-da-da, uh, those are still written in the Jackson's yeah. edition of the script without the scene breaks. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- they do still have breaks between the scenes in terms of a full blackout but right. there seems just seems to be a sense of them being more butted up against each other than there is in my edition of the script. So that's kind of a fascinating I'm not sure if that's a publishing choice or a playwright choice.
0: Right, right. And in in those in those transition scenes too there is a robust sound design yeah. uh uh, uh, put into the script, so you have sounds of the neighborhood. Sometimes it's the sounds of burning houses. So, so yeah, it's it is an interesting question of of you know how do you how do you do blackouts without the sense of scenes? How do you incorporate this audio storytelling that is a part of that is written into this play as well?
1: So to return to this final kind of. Two scene pairing the uh, dr- the drunken fire night right Ben Sharon, Mary, Kenny they're dancing they're drunk they're kissing they start a fire with the broken patio furniture. the fire gets out of control but the four of them are watching it commenting on it blackout we get the fire noises, fire truck noises police officers and then lights come back up the next morning and it- there's a man there we've never seen meet, met. And uh, that's interesting. Introduce a new character in the last scene. And this new character tells us that he is Kenny's great uncle. And he tells us that most of what we've believed about who Kenny and Sharon are, their relationship with the house, and even Kenny's name, uh, is not a fact. In fact, Kenny's name is Roger. Roger. I, I'm not sure we have any reason to trust that Sharon's real name was Sharon. Uh, Frank doesn't actually know her name. He just knows her as the, the new girl that Roger brought to introduce to him. Um, and they aren't actually renting the house from the great uncle. They broke in and they've just been leaving the doors unlocked so they can get in and out. And we don't know where they are either. I mean, they don't appear again in the play. All we're left with is this mystery of their lives
0: yeah, they 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 kind of disappear, um which prevents this from being a play in a similar vein of like a dinner with friends or something like that. that that you're 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 uh, really kind of focused on these two couples and their n- dynamic. Perhaps you you materialize a protagonist out of it or not. But this scene with them just kind of gone. Um, really focuses the lens of the story on Ben and Mary and, and how they are as a result of this relationship with the two couples still. Um, but but this final scene does grab our focus and put it on Ben and Mary.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point because up until this final scene, the stage time between the couples is like 50-50. I yeah. mean, they're one person from each couple at least is in every scene, mm-hmm. um, and so the the attention on whose story this play is is I and I, I'm going to say vague, but I don't mean vague with the negative connotations. It's sort of intentionally vague. We're meant to follow these people together. Up until this last scene, and with the disappearance of Kenny and Sharon, you're very right that this puts the focus on Ben and Mary in the end of the play. And the play then becomes what has happened to them as a result of this meeting with Kenny, or I guess his real name is Roger, and Sharon, whatever her real name is.
0: Well, yeah, and I mean, there's some significant things that have happened. I mean, not just the house that is now ashes. Um, the, there's there's a, a great bit of dialogue between them that uh, uh, Ben is holding this like sheet of paper, and he said they told me to like document everything that managed to survive so that they have a sense of what our net worth is right now. He's like, "There's there's nothing to put on the sheet. Nothing survived." Um, <laughs> so they they have their car. Um, that that that's about it. Um, so and and you have uh, significant secrets that were revealed the the night before that that Ben is now uh, or, or that Ben and Mary are now living in. Ben confesses that he's he not only, did not spend the last however many months. I think it's something crazy. Like it's either seven weeks or seven months. I forget, forget the amount of time, a long amount of time that he's been saying he's been working on this, uh, consulting project. He confesses. He's actually just been pretending he's an Englishman (laughs) and, and leading a, uh, uh, a kind of fan fiction, uh, forum life in, in that, in that realm. So there's, there's big things that have happened as a result of their friendship slash time with Kenny and Sharon.
1: Yeah and the of course a lot of this deals with like who were these people really right i mean it it's it's a lovely brilliant device i think to use this new character frank to tell the audience something obvious right not obvious in that we should have known all along although the clues are there but more obvious in the sense of it's going to be stated outright frank says to the audience and to ben and mary of course kenny and sharon were not who you thought they were their lives are not what you thought they were this facade of a home that they put up I e, and and you know they put it up badly pretty much everybody comments on how bizarre the inside of their house is because they literally own nothing it's like the yeah. coffee table that Ben and Mary gave them, a mattress on the floor in the bedroom, and then like some clothes that they bought in the closet. So it's a, it, I think Frank describes it as spooky, right? So it's this shell of a house that had a false facade of being, and a bad facade too, of being a real house, right? He says th- that none of that was real. There's something else about who they really were that you don't really know, and I don't really know, and I'm not sure we're ever going to know. And so what Lisa Moore does on the play level is use that to prompt the audience to then say to each other, well, who are Ben and Mary? We didn't, you know, we didn't, they're more obvious is that we didn't know Kenny and Sharon at all, but now we're learning that Ben might want to go by Ian. In fact, Mary does refer to him as Ian and he thinks that he is British or he feels that he is truly British and uh, similar questions about, well, what's going to happen with this financial planning? I think at one point earlier in the play, Ben says, I have a vision for my life And now it's like, well, what is that vision? Is it this financial planning website? Apparently the website doesn't really even exist. And they're talking about moving to England. And so we end up with the less obvious question, the more subtle question is, who are Ben and Mary?
0: And then to broaden that theme out even more, in Frank's story, you kind of include the question of what is this neighborhood? What is this narrative that 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 kind of suburban uh, home life is is uh, has been supporting for so long? And is it, in fact, a, a true narrative or some sort of facade? You have Frank reflecting on, like, maybe this maybe it's time that I, like, you know, find some sort of way to historically put down what happened here. He reflects Kind of movingly on on the life that he lived uh, back in the day when he lived in this neighborhood when everyone was kind of in in the community to, community together the sort of events that they had the sort of uh, lifestyle that they and their families lived um, so so you have that kind of similar wondering of maybe we've been looking at this whole you know progress myth of american culture and and not really seen the 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 backside of it or the underside of it as it as it deteriorates
1: yeah I, and i have to admit that i'm a little torn on what the more what i think de more is trying to do with these nostalgic reflections of an earlier age because on the one hand they might be sort of what you just described which is like The way that society has developed has been isolating and negative and um, disenfranchising to so many people, and there was a better way earlier. But it also might be that 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 nostalgia itself is kind of a false front and and there is a sense that well yeah all this stuff frank is describing from the 50s is great but also there were terrible things that happened yeah. at that time right like black people probably would not have been allowed to live in that neighborhood in the 50s right. you know there is a dark terrible underbelly to that too. And I'm, I'm not sure I know exactly how we are supposed to experience the nostalgia. Is it sort of pure longing or is it a, a sense of there's always an empty shell behind the false front, no matter what kind of a society and neighborhood we create?
0: Well, I think, yeah, absolutely. I think it's impossible to view that nostalgia without the, the acknowledgement of the burning building in front of them.
1: Yeah, oh, um, that, that's great. You're right to yeah. bring in the visual layer that is there on top of what is happening in the text.
0: Yeah, you, you you see the the house completely burnt down. The house that you maybe see, depending on your staging of it, is the next door one, and you know that that one is kind of fallen to into disrepair. That it's empty. That the the door is uh, actually in the stage directions. It says the door is hanging open to you to it, so you can see the interior of this empty house. So even as he's waxing philosophical about what this nostalgia was, what this place was to him, you're looking at the consequences of that lifestyle, and, and that those decisions that were made in, in his era of living here acted out in front of you.
1: Yeah, well, and, and it's really, it's the pair of houses that creates the strong, really striking, I mean, I haven't seen the play, but I have to imagine that the ending image of Ben and Mary isolated alone together with this pair of houses, one of them burnt black, a, a, a truly uh, a lost cause, a destroyed home. And then the other one, something that looks like a home, but on the inside we know it's not. We know really it wasn't it didn't ever belong to them in any kind of sense, even in the sense of being renters, that it is empty, it's spooky inside. And I, And that image is it's sort of powerful enough to make you really feel it even just in the imagining.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one of the things that, like, you know, as as you read through the stage directions of plays, like, you get kind of get in the practice of painting the picture in your head, and that's just a beautiful picture at the end of the play. And even even as you kind of imagine, then, you know, these two, you know, if, if this was the helicopter shot or the boom shot at the end of the movie, you know, you zoom out over... This mid mid sized uh, American city, Detroit, um, and 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 you see the whole neighborhood, and you 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 kind of ask the question: How does this have ramifications and ripple effects throughout all of our neighborhoods?
1: So, what do you think, Jackson? What kind of images beyond this incredible final one really stick with you from the rest of the play? I mean, she's done such an incredible job tying together visual physical elements with the stories of the kind of internal life of the characters. One really nice example is uh, when Ben injures himself at Kenny and Sharon's barbecue what happens is that the deck that Kenny is building looks like a deck but it doesn't have any sort of structural support it's right like empty inside, unfinished not what it appears to be and so it breaks through and ends up injuring Ben. Of course there's some uh, thematic metaphorical foreshadowing to what is going to occur then at the end of the play
0: yeah I think one of the ones that really stands out to me is the the way that the the, the fire party ends up happening and the the breaking of all the things on the back porch because they, they they make this fire from the kind of pieces of the patio furniture that they have been using for their backyard barbecues the whole time. And
1: for the play, right? I mean, like, the patio yeah. furniture is kind of defined the play because those barbecues, other than the spare mirrored one at Kenny and Sharon's where they try to make their own patio furniture out of kind of crap, the patio right. furniture is a really defining element of the play.
0: Mm-hmm. And the and that is the stuff that starts to burn on stage, which, by the way, that that's that whole fire scene... Is a bit of a technical feat. There's um. some technical feats in this play, <laughs>
1: are there not? I mean, yeah. think about just like the fire of it aside, there's a patio furniture set. Which is define a defining set piece of the play, right? Yeah, it's not like some bureau off to the side that you can make out of crappy, fern, you know, crappy plywood and then just fake break every night and put together. I mean, right. the, the characters sit, stand, negotiate around. <laughs> this is a real piece of furniture that defines the play, and then at the end of the play, they got to break it into pieces. <laughs> And then I suppose with lighting effects or something lighted on fire. But like right. the pa- that's kind of a technical feat.
0: Technical and then there's I mean it goes on, right? The fire especially there's a torch involved. The torch has to go inside the house at least and then outside of the house even if you don't necessarily have to see Kenny lighting the curtains on fire. So so I think that that whole scene holds a lot of images in my mind. You know, wonderings as a as a, a theater technician around like how loud is the music? They turn the music up a couple times to where it's like unbearably loud for them, but we obviously need to hear them speaking. So so all of these questions, that scene is going to evoke a lot as you leave the building.
1: Got to have a burned house on stage in the next uh-huh. scene. There's, that's kind of interesting. There's a lot of bleeding in the play. Of course, yep. stage people have kind of figured out blood, but still...
0: Mm-hmm. there's there's the, the umbrella trick right the, yeah, umbrella, the umbrella has trick. to fall on cue onto Kenny's head
1: mm-hmm. yep and breaking through the porch there's a lot of meat that gets cooked throughout yeah. the play I mean food mm-hmm. plays a central
0: role yeah, cooked in front of you too like on a grill. So, yeah. so yeah. <laughs>
1: there are I think what, th- four separate grilling moments throughout the uh-huh. play and it's crazy. Well, yeah. it, it, it all that I think if you can achieve in this evocative image-based way is going to surround a play that is really interesting, that really pulls you in and then punches you with two absolutely 180 turn-you-on-your-head moments. The moment of the drunken Bakian fire and then the moment when you discover Kenny and Sharon are not who you thought they were are really kind of whip you around in this uh, real... It just keeps you in it. You are, now Now what is going to happen? I mean, it. the story is is just, it's remarkable, I think.
0: It really is. And we've we've stayed at a pretty uh kind of far above meta level as well. But along the way to those points, these individual ca- there are some stunning scenes in here. Some really stunning monologues that we're we're coming down to the end of our time. We're not gonna have the time to kind of go through and, and all the minutia of each of those, but so many great so many great scenes between characters where you, you get into the honesty of the struggle of, of these two couples, of what their the struggle is for them in their in their individual units, the struggles to to try to connect and all of that is kind of worked out in these, in these beautiful back and forth scenes. I love some of Sharon's stuff. Sharon is written as this character who can just kind of say things. Um, And, and it sometimes it's a like it comes out of left field, but it's almost always something really profound that she's kind of working on and has the courage to say in front of people.
1: Yeah, of course, all set up by the fact that in scene one, she asks Ben if he's British kind of right. out of nowhere, yeah. which ends up being a major thing throughout the play. She has this um, a, a really discerning sensibility. I mean, she is the one that immediately asks Mary, you know, should we get you some help for your drinking problem, which yeah. is uh, also kind of one of those things that cuts right to the bone of the matter
0: cares a lot about dreams and and how, how the dreams have have meanings for things. There's there's so many things we can keep talking about. Alas, we are coming down to the end of our time. Fortunately, the conversation doesn't have to end here. If you have been in this play or read this play, seen this play at all, we would love to keep talking about it with you. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those places. We'd love to keep talking about Detroit with you.
1: Absolutely. Please recommend us to your family, your friends, anybody that you know that likes scripts, that likes theater, that likes literature, that likes art. Lots of kinds of folks would like this podcast. Send them our way. We are encouraged that our listenership grows and grows, and largely that is due to you all, because we don't really do a lot of advertising. We kind of post in the channels where you all already exist so that you know what script we're going to talk about, but the word spreads from your your mouths and fingers I guess typing on keyboards and such so it's a huge privilege thank you all very much for that you can send new folks to us at Podbean where we're hosted you can get that as an app or online it's also in Google Play Apple Podcasts and Spotify if you're less technologically savvy if you like us on Facebook you can just click and it'll take you right to a webpage that plays the episode when it releases every Monday so you can connect with us over there hey be around next Monday or whenever you listen to the episodes because that is going to be our special guest episode episode for season six kay edmonds is on and she and i have discussed detroit 67 by dominique Morisseau. we're excited to release that conversation to you all
0: yes i will not be around but you all should be so have a listen into that next week until next time i am jackson Nikolai.
1: i am jacob man christensen thanks for joining us for no script the podcast
0: we'll see ya